Welcome to episode 17 of the Tar Sands Diplomat, Canada's one and only satirical diplomatic thriller. Many thanks to those of you who have made reviews on Amazon.ca. The Tar Sands Diplomat marketing machine is grateful. But it turns out we also need ratings on iTunes so those pesky algorithms will move the podcast to the top of the list. So if you haven't rated the podcast on iTunes, we would appreciate a click. Thanks. And now here is the author, Keith Halliday, reading episode 17. The Tarzan's Diplomat, chapter 20. A conspiracy is hatched. The next morning, I arranged a discreet lunch with Violet, Camille, and assuming he actually arrived, Lefranc. Violet agreed immediately when I asked for her help. There had been an awkward pause with Camille. Had it been reluctance to help? I flattered myself that she'd been expecting an invitation to dinner and the Prokofiev concert that night, instead of a conspiratorial lunch with Lefranc and Violet. In any case, I'd chosen a quiet restaurant on the Quai Brique, away from the tourists and Canadian diplomats who infest the Grand Place. I sneaked carefully out of flat number 21, just in case someone in housing decided to check in on number 21 while they were checking my empty flat upstairs. I hid the scotch, port Stilton, and boxes of Lefranc's favorite crackers that I'd purchased for a lengthy safe house stay. It would be days before anyone noticed I wasn't back in my office at the department in Ottawa. In fact, considering the matter dispassionately, it might be weeks. At noon, I walked to pick up Lefranc at the mannequin piss as agreed. It's a Brussels landmark. I suppose a statue of a small naked boy urinating would be popular with tourists anywhere. I was nearly there when my Blackberry planked in my blazer pocket. It was a pin from Violet. Camille plus me at resto. Your ETA? Said the text. Sorry, we are running late and we'll be there soon, I replied. Just a split second later, I got a response. Texting virgin. Full sentences. Quaint. With a little smiley face. I'd done some reading about Blackberry pins. The messages went directly over the Blackberry data network. Neither the content nor even the fact the message had been sent were tracked in the phone company's system or on the department's email servers. Anything electronic can be tapped, of course, but following someone's PIN required significantly more sophisticated technical capabilities, and, importantly, they probably had to be deliberately targeting the phone in question. It wasn't as easy as looking at sent emails or your phone bill. As I approached the mannequin piss, I spotted Lefranc immediately. He towered above the crowd. He was wearing his favorite blazer, and was waving his arms emphatically as he shepherded a family of tourists into position for a group photo. I noticed they had Canadian flag patches on their backpacks. That is good, good, enthused Lefranc in his best Prussian war movie accent as the mother yanked the baseball cap off her son's head and pointed him at the camera. Where are you coming from? Kingston, Ontario, replied the mother with more than a tinge of civic pride. Yeah, yeah, Canada. My grandfather was in a special prisoner of war camp there for U-boat commanders. Lefranc stepped forward, took the camera, and gave the boy his bottle of scotch to hold while he did so. He said it was much better than being firebombed by your air force back in Hamburg, like Grandmama, rest her soul. The parents looked slightly shaken as Lefranc snapped the photo and swapped the camera for his scotch. God, that joke never gets old, muttered Lefranc as we strode towards the Grand Place. I knew in a flash he'd been taking those dodgy Russian jet lag pills he raves about. I feel great, he said. A fresh bottle of duty-free Lagavulin under my arm, and boy, those pills really do the trick. Knocked me out right after takeoff, and here I am, fresh as a daisy. You remember the time I took them, I said. 
The stewardess had to shake me awake after everyone else had deplaned, and I got hung up in customs because they thought I was a drug dealer who'd been sampling his product. But Frank has always had an ability not to hear contrary opinions. I can't believe you can't even get them with a prescription in Canada, he continued. The health department is so persnickety. He had only a small overnight bag, suitable for his cover story that he was visiting his other daughter in Toronto. We proceeded directly to meet Violet and Camille. Along the way, Lefranc showed me his Russian pills and told me how Middle Eastern history might have been different if John Foster Dulles hadn't been so jet-lagged and cranky when he met President Nasser and decided to pull American support for the Aswan Dam. The Soviets never would have got their foot in the door, he exclaimed. Violet and Camille were waiting for us when we arrived. A horse meat restaurant, McGregor? asked Violet, waving the menu accusingly at me. Is this the one you took Elizabeth to for her birthday? Uh, it's, it's a Brussels Wa specialty, I replied, defensively. It was embarrassing that Violet knew that story, although not as mortifying as the moment itself, when Elizabeth, who rode on the equestrian team as a girl, reminded me that on her 16th birthday her father had given her a horse, not a horse dinner. Well, at least the chances of other Canadians being here are zero, said Violet politely, before she ordered a salad. I took the roti de cheval a la hussard, while Lefranc and Camille ordered the tartare de cheval. Over lunch, we agreed we had to figure out some way to find enough new evidence that we could convince, or shame, Security Division into reopening Julian's file. I was pleased Camille and Lefranc committed to help us, despite not knowing Julian as well as Violet and I had. Camille had a quiet but strong sense of justice, and Lefranc was always ready for a campaign, especially if it exposed sloth and incompetence at the department. We simply cannot allow his murderers to get off scot-free, said Violet. One thing I've always wondered, said Lefranc, is scot-free some kind of ethnic slur like Welshing on a bet? Scot is an ancient word for attacks, I replied. It has nothing to do with Scotland. This seemed to amuse Camille for some reason, but Violet just stared at us with a slight frown. Then she intervened. Look, this is going nowhere if you guys keep acting like this is a regular meeting as a department, she said firmly. We have to have less etymology, less wordsmithing, and less department. She was right, of course. I recalled an entire meeting wasted as Dunscap tried to convince communications that the word niggardly was acceptable in a press release because it had ancient Anglo-Saxon origins and had nothing to do with slavery. I briefed the group on the latest developments. We quickly agreed on three things. First, Sherlock's report was a farce. Second, that we needed to find enough evidence to force the reopening of Julian's case, hopefully with real investigators from the RCMP instead of Sherlock. And third, that while red-haired Russian prostitutes might be one hypothesis, we simply didn't have enough facts to know for sure. I'm sorry if I offend anyone, said Camille, but we must admit there's a possibility that Julian was killed by a prostitute he had hired, or her pimp. But why, I asked, if robbery was the motive... Isn't it more usual to drug the victim? The murder weapon was an Inuit statue, said Violet. That suggests it wasn't premeditated. Perhaps a dispute over payment went too far, or maybe they were blackmailing him and he resisted. What about a burglary, I asked. Julian comes home early from the stagiaire party, surprises the burglars, and gets killed. But that doesn't explain why he was naked. And how did they get into his apartment? You said that Sherlock's report said all the doors and windows were secure. Lefranc opened his mouth. Did Julian have anything worth stealing in the apartment? And I thought Brussels burglars preferred the long European summer holidays rather than hit and runs on occupied apartments. Lefranc paused and then went on. What if the Greens burgled his apartment to get the duty officer's briefcase 
and documents in order to embarrass Kandu Canada. But how did they get in? I said. The door wasn't tampered with. I related how some villains had simply knocked on the hotel room door of one of our ambassadors in Africa and had taped him to a chair and robbed his room after he opened it. Well, most Canadians can't resist opening a door if it's knocked on, agreed Lefranc. It's pretty high risk to rob someone's apartment while they're actually in it, said Violet. Why not just mug him on the sidewalk? And how could you know the duty officer's briefcase would have sensitive documents in it? If Julian was doing his job properly, it wouldn't have anything interesting at all. But a non-diplomat wouldn't know how boring it is to be duty officer, I replied. Lefranc leaned forward. How about this theory? The Greens need dirt on Can-Do Canada. They get some saucy environmental activist, you know the kind, hairy armpits but still sexy, to target Julian in a honey trap. Then they try to blackmail him into giving them juicy secret documents. But something goes wrong. He dies in a scuffle. And they put girly magazines and escort ads all over the apartment to throw off investigative geniuses like Sherlock. That would explain why Julian's fingerprints weren't on the magazines or tourist map, I thought. And one of Culloden's female minions even had red hair, I remembered. Let me go even farther, said Camille. I'm here as a friend of yours, McGregor, not as a French fonctionnaire. Our oil company, Franck Energie, would love nothing better than to keep Canadian oil out of Europe. She told us about how their huge joint ventures in Algeria and Russia were running into trouble, and how happy they would be that the Green Alliance was whipping up resistance to Canadian oil. And if anyone has the resources to burgle apartments, said Camille, and leak documents around the world, it would be them. Interesting, replied Violet. A lot of controversy around Canadian oil would put off the commission from greenlighting any import schemes, and it would also strengthen resistance back in Canada to the pipeline from Alberta to the Atlantic tanker terminal. The Prime Minister is from Alberta, but the pipeline goes through a lot of marginal ridings in Ontario and Quebec. She paused and picked at her horse-free salad. But why steal the duty officer's briefcase? It might not have anything useful in it. Presumably the French are all over Canadian telephones and email. Why not leak some intercepts? Perhaps, said Camille with a wink, the cryptography systems you buy from the Americans are so good that only they can read your traffic, not us. <laughs> but remember also that one must never leak intercepts since it gives away that you have them. One must always find a plausible explanation for the leak. You recall the Zimmerman telegram. Camille had a point. During the First World War, the British decoded a telegram from German Foreign Minister Zimmerman proposing an alliance with Mexico against the United States. The Americans were still neutral, but the British knew that leaking the telegram would outrage the Americans and possibly bring them into the war on the Allied side. Yet even with this much at stake, they went to the trouble of bribing Mexican telegraph agents after they'd already tapped German traffic, just to conceal their interception capabilities. So it wasn't a fishing expedition, said Violet, developing the story. They already had our traffic and needed a plausible cover story for how the secure emails went public. And stealing the duty officer's briefcase was perfect, since outsiders would think the leak came from there, even if there was nothing in the briefcase. Exactly, said Camille. Julian would, of course, deny there was anything confidential in the briefcase, but your security people could never be sure. And if you killed Julian, said Violet, he couldn't even deny it. Security division would assume the leak came from the duty officer's briefcase. Killing a Canadian diplomat is a bit much, even for our thugs, said Camille. Lefranc reminded everyone how French intelligence blew up the Rainbow Warrior, a Greenpeace protest ship, right in Auckland Harbour in 1985. We chewed our horse in contemplation for a few minutes. This might be getting serious. Then Violet spoke. Perhaps it was personal, a crime of passion with the nearest blunt instrument. 
my university roommate was ready to kill Julian after he dumped her for a girl from Madrid he could practice his Spanish on. Duvel's daughter, I wondered? That's where he was that evening. Maybe she clubbed him on the head in some French female rage. We do such things all the time, remarked Camille dryly. Add it to the list, said Lefranc, with the greenies and frank energy. Stranger things have happened. But tell me more about greenies and this Culloden character. He always seems to be in the right place at the right time, which makes me suspicious. I recounted Culloden's story, including his aristocratic English upbringing, service in the Special Air Service in Iraq and Central Asia, and strange conversion to his current lifestyle. He's a charismatic figure, I said. He lives in a carbon-neutral house with a grass roof and solar panels, and has gone all organic and vegetarian. He seems to have a film crew with him half the time, not to mention a cloud of keen young enthusiasts who do yoga with him, mow his roof, tend his organic potato patch, and help him run his campaigns. Violet and Camille exchanged glances. I think most of the keen young enthusiasts are female, said Camille. Violet reached into her briefcase, pulled out a copy of European Nature magazine, and opened it on the table. There was a photo of Ian Culloden leaning on a spade in his garden, his shirt clinging tightly to his body with perspiration. In the background was his stylish eco-home. The caption said, Ian Culloden, the green woman's bit of organic crumpet. Lefranc grabbed the magazine. The green woman's bit of organic crumpet? Who writes this stuff? He is a bit hot, said Violet. Yes, sort of like an ecological version of Colin Firth stepping out of that lake as Mr. Darcy, added Camille. Yes, well, I said, let's not get the impression he's Gandhi. You told me he flies business class to speak at conferences all over the world, dresses in only the most expensive yoga outfits, and treats the lobby of the Hotel de l'Imperatrice like his personal office. And I think his definition of vegetarianism includes wild salmon, if it's cooked by a Michelin three-star chef. McGregor sounds a bit jealous, said Violet to Camille. They giggled like teenage girls. Okay, let's wrap up, said Violet wiping the smirk off her face and using her firmest chair-of-the-board tone. All the hypotheses are on the table. Let's move to action. I will chase down Duvel's daughter. Lafranc and McGregor will track down the Brussels journalists who published the leak and see if that sheds any light on the matter. Camille will see what she can find out about Franck Energy. But I think our main priority should remain the Green Alliance and Ian Culloden. Perhaps one of us should try seducing him, remarked Camille. I must have frowned, since Violet jumped in immediately. Yes! McGregor should try first, and then if he's not gay, Camille and I will give it a shot. Together, I suppose, asked Camille, watching me. Would someone like Ian Culloden go for it any other way, responded Violet. Thanks for listening to episode 17 of the Tarzan's Diplomat. If you have any questions or comments, please contact me at khalliday at tarzansdiplomat.com. And if you haven't done so already... Please leave a review on iTunes if you've been enjoying the podcast or for the book on Amazon.ca. And check your iTunes next week for episode 18.